the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Buzz to four. The following program is sponsored Truth Incorporated. Today on Know the Truth from Philip DeCourcy. Jesus, according to Matthew 5, 17, didn't come to abolish the law, but to deepen its impact and fulfill its intention. And I think Jesus assumed the right to self-defense, because as we have clearly seen, you find it in the story of Esther, you see it in the actions of Nehemiah, and in fact, the Proverbs and the Psalms call us to step in and to defend the innocent against the wicked. Does Jesus call Christians to be pacifists? What about all the accounts of war and self-defense we read about in the Old Testament? And didn't Jesus tell his disciples to carry swords? To answer these questions, we must look at the whole counsel of God. That's just what we'll do today on Know the Truth with our teacher, Philip DeCourcy. We'll begin in Luke chapter 22, and then we'll go to several verses in the Old Testament to gain a biblical perspective on the subject of self-defense. Philip starts by laying down some important principles. Remember our maxims for maximum security? Number one, pray for inner peace and calm. Number two, expect suffering as a Christian. Number three, believe in the goodness of God in the face of bad things. Number four, keep a prophetic perspective on the Middle East. Number five, identify and engage the real enemy, Satan. And here's number six, exercise your right to self-defense. I think that's biblical. So let's get into the meat of it. Four things, four questions. We're going to look at the Scripture question, the Savior question, the sovereignty question, and the suffering question. Follow along. First of all, the Scripture question. What's that question? Does the Bible make a defense of the right to self-defense? That's the question. The Scripture question. Does the Bible allow for the use of lethal force, the employment of a weapon in the defense of your life and those you love? I believe it does. I don't believe it gives unqualified support, but I do believe the Bible gives clear support for a person's right to self-defense. The Bible's not just about how to get to heaven. The Bible's about how to live in an ugly world, justly and righteously, before you get to go to heaven. And remember, as biblicists, as Protestants, we believe in the principle of sola scriptura. The Bible is a sufficient and authoritative guide regarding all matters of life and godliness. So my question is, what does the Bible say about guns, weapons, self-defense? Well, here's a few verses, not exhaustive, just suggestive. Now let's back up into the subject by going to Exodus 20, 13. Thou shalt not kill. And some people take that, and they read into that, and they read out of that. That means that all killings are bad, period. And that's the Christian position. 
Even if you're in a uniform, you shouldn't kill anybody. And certainly as a citizen in your neighborhood, you have no right to take another person's life because the Bible says thou shalt not kill. Hold on a minute. That's the old King James, which is a wonderful translation of God's Word. But if you've got the new King James, or you've got the NIV, or you've got the NASB, or the ESV, doesn't your Bible say, Thou shalt not murder? Because that's what's really being talked about there. The sixth commandment is not a prohibition to kill anybody or anything. This commandment, which reflects the heart and holiness of God, is a prohibition against murder. The illegal, illegitimate taking of innocent life. But you know what? If you go into the next chapter, God orders the killing of certain people for capital offenses. So Exodus 20 can't mean, you know, a period stop at all kinds of killing. Because the Bible teaches capital punishment, the death of some who have committed capital offenses. Here's another thing. Genesis 14. Genesis 14, 12 to 16. I think you've got one of the earliest records of an act of self-defense in the Bible. When Abraham's family and his loved ones are attacked, his brother is taken captive, some of his friends and family are taken captive along with some of his livestock and belongings. Now, If you read the text, you'll read in verse 14 of Genesis 14 that Abraham raises 318 what's called trained men to do battle. Basically a posse a little bit of a militia, a group of men who were skilled warriors, and he went and got his brother Lot back. And there's nothing in the text that would censor that. In fact, Abraham does it out of pure motive. He doesn't grab land. He doesn't take their possessions. He simply takes back what was his. There's nothing vindictive about it. He didn't start the fight. There's nothing punishable about it. He simply took back what was his. In fact, the four kings who were party to the raid were fearful now that Abraham would double back and take their stuff. And Abraham says, I'm not wanting your land, but you shouldn't take my brother. Here's another text. We're going to turn to this one. This is very critical. This is a great text on the issue of self-defense. Go to Exodus 22. Remember, we're only a chapter 2 after the sixth commandment. And look what we read in verse 2. If a thief is found breaking in, this is a break and entry into a home. If a thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, you know, was it a club? Was it a frying pan? Who knows? But the guy gets walloped and he dies. Look what the text says. There shall be no guilt for the bloodshed. This is a justifiable homicide. Okay, verse 2. It happens at night. The guy breaks in and you clobber him. God says that's justifiable. Verse 3. If the sun has risen in him, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. I hope you get what's going on. See, at night, you have no way of telling it's a thief, a rapist, or a murderer. Are you going to wait to find out? No. You kill the guy. And God says, we're not going to hold you guilty because you didn't know. Because if he had been a murderer, you could have taken his life justly. But in the daytime, when you can tell a thief from a murderer, a guy who's just coming in to get your stereo or your TV, you can't kill him. You let him go. Because if you kill him, it's an unjustifiable homicide because your life is not under threat. The Bible's very clear on this. Killing someone is never over property or over possessions. It's over the taking of another life created in the image of God. So very important text. Mark that text. One of the best in the Old Testament. 
If this is to be justifiable self-defense, then you need to be the victim of the aggressor, and you must not go on the aggression yourself and take from them what's not yours. Again, you see it in Nehemiah chapter 4, where the threat is growing. And what does Nehemiah say to the civilians? He gets half the men to carry spears and the other half to build the wall. So they guard the wall. And here's what Nehemiah says to them. God is awesome and God will fight for us. But he says this too, fight for your families. Defend your home. Guard the city. I think that's all justifiable. That's all acceptable. Go to Proverbs 24, verse 11. I think this is another argument for the justification of self-defense in certain circumstances. There's this theme that I think springboards off the command to love your neighbor, right? There's two great commandments among the many commandments. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And I would say embedded in that idea, if God allows me to protect myself in an act of self-defense, even in the use of lethal force, can't I exercise that out of love for my neighbor? Shouldn't I not only think about my own protection, but the protection of my neighbors and my neighborhood? I think that's fair. Let me give you two verses I think will help you with that. Proverbs 24, verse 11. What does the Bible say? Deliver those who are drawn towards death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. Intervene and save life. That's a biblical principle. If you go to Psalm 82 and verse 4, it's even more explicit. Psalm 82 and verse 4. Deliver the poor and needy. Free them from the hand of the wicked. Now you can guess what's in the hand of the wicked. Okay, it's not an ice cream. It's stuff to hurt the poor and the needy. And I can assure you, I don't think this text is teaching me, here's what you need to do. You need to go up to the wicked who have got weapons in their hand and say, you know what? Can I ask you to stop what you're doing? You think that works? Come on. This is a text that says, when you have the ability, you have the right to intervene physically, even lethally, to protect the life of other people just as you would yourself. In fact, if you go to Ezekiel 33, that's the watchman on the wall passage. Read it. And God warns the watchman, the guard, the guy who's up in the tower, if you don't watch for the coming of the enemy and people lose their lives because of your negligence, I'm going to hold you accountable. It's pretty strong stuff. Because I think, again, there's this idea. It goes back to Cain and Abel. Am I my brother's keeper? Yes, you are. Out of love for neighbor, you may act in self-defense, not only to save you, but save them, and lethal force may be required to free them from the hand of the wicked. So, let's move to the New Testament. Although somebody might ask right now, Pastor, come on, that's all interesting, but that's all the Old Testament. See, we're New Covenant believers. We're to live according to Jesus' ethic. You know, love your enemies. Don't resist the evil man. So, you know, we really don't get our morality from the Old Testament. Well, my friend, who told you that nonsense? Of course, some things are obligated. Some things are superseded. But I would remind you that Paul says in 1 Timothy 1 verse 8 that the law is good. And you'll find almost all of the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue, the moral law of God reflected in the New Testament. Because you see, the moral law of God, the commandments of God given to ancient Israel are a reflection of His holiness and His righteousness. And don't forget, the laws that governed Israel 
or a measurement of the laws that should be extended in much degree to Gentile nations, because Israel is a light to the Gentiles, according to the Bible. So I'm not about to toss all of what I find in the Old Testament, and certainly not the moral law. And I think you have a principle consistently sown through the Old Testament where there are times and places where you can act in self-defense and not be held blood guilty. Although, what are we going to do with Jesus? I mean, he seems at least to contradict the Old Testament. Well, I think that's a case of he only seems to contradict it. Because you and I need to work on the basis that Jesus doesn't address everything. He assumes much from the Old Testament. Let me give you an example. You can't find a verse anywhere in the gospel where Jesus condemns homosexuality directly. Why did he not address that issue? Because it was already codified in the morality of the Old Testament. And the moral law of God is perpetual and is applied to all ages and stages of human history. And I think it's the same. I think Jesus assumed the right to self-defense, because as we have clearly seen, it was found as early as Abraham. It was codified in Exodus 22. You find it in the story of Esther. You see it in the actions of Nehemiah. And in fact, the Proverbs and the Psalms call us to step in and to defend the innocent against the wicked. And that's to fulfill the law, because at the heart of the law is to love your neighbor. And don't tell me you love your neighbor as you stand by and watch them get slaughtered. So bear that in mind. Jesus, according to Matthew 5, 17, didn't come to abolish the law, but to deepen its impact and fulfill its intention. That's why one theologian said, the Old Testament is to be authoritatively deferred to when it is not expressively referred to. Just because it's not referred to doesn't mean we don't defer to it. So, Let's get to the New Testament quickly. Write down Luke eleven twenty one. We're not going to go there for the sake of time. But again, this is Jesus. And I'm going to argue here, Jesus assumes the principle and pattern of the Old Testament that if your home is invaded, you have a right to defend yourself. You have a right to use lethal force if someone's trying to take your life illegally or illegitimately. Because remember there, he's charged with being in league with the devil. He's been exercising demons. And the Pharisees say, hey, you're doing this in the name of Beelzebub. And Jesus goes, are you guys crazy? So you're telling me the devil's fighting against himself? I mean, I'm expelling his demons and his minions, and now you're telling me I'm doing that to serve him? I'm not serving him. I'm his master. And my exorcisms and my authority proves that the kingdom of darkness is subject to my lordship. And what does he tell them a story? Remember the story he says? Hey, if someone breaks into a house... The first thing he's got to do is tie up the strong man. And then he can plunder his house. And Jesus uses that to say, Hey, I'm breaking up the kingdom of darkness. And I'm proving it because I've tied the devil up. I'm binding him. I'm showing in my authority I have control over him. But folks, the point we want to take is, Jesus tells a story where the act of self-defense is embedded and legitimate within the story. If you're going to break into someone's house, you better bind him up. Because if he's not bound, he's going to kill you. Because Exodus 22 says he can, if you prove to be a threat to him. But here's the verse I find most interesting, and we'll read this, Luke 22, 35 to 38. This is the ground zero for a discussion on firearms and self-defense, I believe, in the New Testament. When Jesus sent his disciples out for the first time, he sent them out with nothing 
And they had to trust in his sovereignty. And he had arranged that he would take care of them. And he says, hey guys, didn't I take care of you when you went out with no bag, no knapsack, no money? And they said, yes, Lord, we needed nothing. But you see, things are about to change. They're about to be commissioned to go out into the whole world. Israel is friendly territory for the most part. They can go out with nothing and God will provide through the people of God what the servants of God need. But that's not going to be true in a Gentile world. And now having trusted God within his sovereignty, they have reason to go out and exercise faith, but that is not faith divorced from means. And so this time Jesus says, as I send you out into the world, guys, take an upsack, a bag of money. And then he tells them what? He says, I want you to sell your shirt I want you to sell your garment and buy a sword. Now, here's what's interesting. That's a Greek term that speaks of a kind of small dagger or a short knife. This isn't the two-edged broadsword of the Roman legionnaire. This is not a military-grade weapon, so to speak. And many commentators, and I agree with them, would say, Jesus is really saying, if we were to update this, he's saying to his disciples, go and get yourselves a couple of handguns for personal protection. Go and get some swords. Now, I'm going to save you the bother. I read several commentaries this week, and I was amazed at how some Bible commentators want to get around this text, and they're going to argue this is spiritual. He didn't really mean physical swords. This is a metaphor for spiritual warfare. And guys, as you preach the gospel, you're going to come up against it. I just don't think that can be justified in the text. I mean... If the money bag is literal, if the knapsack is literal, surely the sword is literal. If you don't have a sword, guys, sell your garment and go and buy one. In fact, they come back and they've got two. And Jesus responds, okay, that's enough. That'll give you some protection wherever you go. And again, some of the commentators who've got pacifistic perspectives embedded in them, not in the text. They seem to say, oh, but you see, that's Jesus rebuking them. What he really means there is enough talk about guns or enough talk about swords. First of all, Jesus started this conversation. It's a literal conversation. Every other element of it's literal. I think he's just saying, guys, okay, two's enough. And they get this idea, oh, he's rebuking them. Oh, they misunderstood him. They went and got physical swords when he meant spiritual swords. Not at all. I mean, there's no dialogue going on here. It's not like they've spoken for a while and Jesus has to rebuke them and go, enough talk about guns. They haven't talked about guns. They went and got the two swords that Jesus said, go and get. They come back and say, Lord, we got them. He says, good, let's get going. It's enough. That's how I read it. My father's no theologian, but he did teach me as a young Christian, when the Bible makes sense, seek no other sense. When it makes plain sense, seek no other sense. Why do you have to spiritualize this text? You spiritualize it if you've got an agenda. But I think this just is consistent. Remember, Jesus is a Jew. He understands the Old Testament. There is a right to bear arms and defend your home. There is a right in certain circumstances reluctantly to take life if your life is under threat. So no wonder. Now, one last thought here. And I'm going to help you make this argument because you'll make that argument and then go, but hold on a minute. Did your pastor tell you about the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane? And you're able to go, he did. Our pastor's smart. He told us about that one. Okay? Because they're going to go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and they're going to go, but hey, remember Peter pulled the sword out? Which again, to me, is an argument. It was physical swords. It's exactly what it was. 
But Peter pulls out the sword and he cuts off Malchus's ear as they try to arrest the Lord Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Put up your sword. And they go, there you go. You see, this is unjustified. There's nothing in the Bible about self-defense. Here's Peter trying to defend the Lord Jesus. And Jesus rebukes him and says, if you take the sword, you'll die by the sword. And there you go, pacifism, non-resistance. Suffer for Jesus. Again, I think that's a misreading. First of all, this is unique. Don't forget Jesus has telegraphed his death. I mean, he had already rebuked Peter before when he said, I'm going to go and die. And Peter said, no, you're not. Get behind me, Satan, because I came to die and I'm going to suffer in Jerusalem. And Peter is getting in the way of the will of God regarding redemption and the death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So, so here's my answer to that. It wasn't that Jesus was rebuking the use of a sword in any situation because he had told his disciples to go and get to. And there are certain situations that they can use it as a means of self-defense. But he's really saying to Peter, Peter, this is not the time, this is not the issue, and this is not the place. Put it up. Can I give you one other New Testament text and then we'll kind of collapse the three remaining questions into just a few minutes because this is the heart of it. Look, you know what? We're not here to defend the Constitution as great as it is. We're here to defend our biblical right to self-defense. And so I'm giving you passages. I'll give you one other New Testament passage. 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. You know it, actually. It's where Paul says to the Thessalonians, if a man doesn't work and take care of his family, he's worse than an unbeliever. God expects men primarily to be the breadwinners, to be at the spearhead of the family's needs and to protect the family and to take care of the need to put a roof over the head and to put food in the stomach. But I have a question. Is that all? Does it not go any further than that? Does it not include emotional health, moral cleanliness, eternal well-being, physical safety? What's the point of providing well for your family if everybody's sitting around the kitchen table eating, but you leave the front door open for anybody to come in and steal your stuff and murder your family? You think you fulfilled the tax by doing that? Hey, I've provided food for you, but really I'm just fighting you for the slaughter. Because you see, this is a wicked, dangerous world. And there are guys outside the front door who would take our stuff. And some are so twisted they would take our life. Do you believe that all a biblical man has to do is put food into his child's stomach and beyond that he's good to go? I don't. Not for one minute. This is a dangerous world, and I believe that every man and woman has a right to exercise, and that is the right of self-defense. And in the normal course of life, where life is sought to be taken illegitimately, life can be preserved by the taking of life. You are listening to a timely message from Philip DeCourcy. This is Know the Truth, and today's study is called In Self-Defense. It's from our series titled Maximum Security. To hear this message again or to purchase it on CD, go to ktt.org. Now, did you know that each time you tune in to Know the Truth, you're benefiting from the support of men and women who value this ministry and want to see God's truth proclaimed with boldness, clarity, and conviction? Perhaps today is the day you'll join this family of faithful supporters by becoming a Truth Ambassador. Truth Ambassadors sign up to give regular monthly donations helping us to create and produce and distribute these Bible teaching programs. And we'd love to add you to the family. Automating your donation is easy by calling 888-644-8811 or sign up to be a Truth Ambassador at ktt.org. 
But whether you become a Truth Ambassador or give a one-time gift, we'll say thanks by sending you Philip DeCourcy's brand new book titled Take Cover. It's a step-by-step guide for finding peace in God's protection, and we want to make sure you get a copy. Before supplies run out, ask for Take Cover when you support the ministry of Know the Truth. Make a secure donation online at ktt.org or give us a call at 888-644-8811 or mail your donation to Know the Truth, Post Office Box 30250, Anaheim Hills, California, 92809. And if you're new to Know the Truth, reach out to us today and we'll send you the free Take Cover bookmark. It lists some of the key principles that Philip shares in his new book. Ask for the free Take Cover bookmark when you call 888-644-8811. I'm your host, Wayne Shepherd. Join us tomorrow when Philip DeCourcy continues teaching us the biblical perspective on self-defense and bearing arms. It's another message from our Maximum Security series, Friday on Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. An exciting new book from Regnery looks at the power of love and intimacy from a godly perspective. It's called Love and Sex, A Christian Guide to Healthy Intimacy. Sex is powerful. Just saying the word can stir up all kinds of emotions inside people. Maybe it's a positive emotion for you or a hurtful, shameful, confusing one. It's no wonder we humans struggle to understand its meaning and purpose. Hi, I'm Nancy Houston, a sex therapist, leadership coach, and licensed professional counselor. After counseling hundreds of clients about the topic of intimacy, I decided to write Love and Sex, a Christian guide to healthy intimacy. Love and Sex is filled with life-changing, compelling stories to help us all reconnect to love and is biblically based on the truths of God's Word. Get your copy now of best-selling author Nancy Houston's compelling new book, Love and Sex, a Christian guide to healthy intimacy. Available now at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. Everybody's making money. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.